My name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed, Bed Crime, Crime Stories. Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. Hi. 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 Um, so if you guys listened to last week's episode, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago episode, because last week's episode was our Jovi Sode, our very first Jovi Sode, which is super exciting. Um, I hope you guys all enjoy the Jovi Sode. But our two weeks ago episode, um, Nikki and I discussed, uh, instead of a true crime headline for this episode, we were going to do some homework. And Nikki was going to watch Scream, and I was going to watch Jennifer's Body. Now, only one of us did our homework, and it wasn't Charlie. (laughs) Charlie did not do her homework. Um, I failed. I failed my assignment. Um, I will say that I'm... uh, that's kind of my mo even when i was in school i didn't do much homework so um <laughs> i will say that it's it's pretty much on brand for me now i will admit that i did watch a youtube video of chris clemens who is a youtube uh person watching jennifer's body while high on edibles and that was very fun so <laughs> it's inspired me to watch it even a little bit more but no i have not watched jennifer's body but we will be instead of true crime headlines for this episode we will be discussing nikki's journey of watching scream so i, I only watched the first one okay so how did you like it uh it definitely was not as scary as i thought it was gonna be right yeah right so i was like i was like oh okay yeah like right. i was like prepared to be scared to be like freaked the hell out it was yeah. it was more of like i guess like what is it the uh it's not like a scary movie but like, like a psychological those... thriller yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so it was definitely like one of those things where you're just like the twist at the end you're like oh my god i wasn't excited yes. yeah so i mean i'm very excited to kind of see the next ones mm-hmm. but i did watch um something else after it and i don't know if you've seen these yet but okay. it's called fear street Okay, so I haven't watched Fear Street, but I've read all the Fear Street books when I was a kid. And it's, like, by R.L. Stein. It's R.L. Stein. It was his teen version of Goosebumps. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so when we watched the first one, because it's kind of based off of, like, uh, Scream. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, so when I watched it, I was like, uh, I was like, why the fuck? Mm -hmm. And then, like, I think it was the first or the second one. I don't know. Oh, I think it was the first one. Mm -hmm. Because I was just kind of, like, watching it in between, and Mm -hmm. I was like... It actually kind of scared me. <laughs> and then, like, my boyfriend's like, yeah, it's R.L. Stein. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then we watched the second one, and I was like, oh, this shit's good. And then yeah. we watched the third one, and I was like, oh, this is really... It, it was really good. Mm-hmm. But, like, it did... Like, the first one that they did reminded mm-hmm. me so much of Scream. Interesting. And I really wanted yeah. to watch Fear Street, because, like I said, I read all of those books when I was younger. Yeah. Because I loved Goosebumps. I think <gasps> I too. had, like, every single Goosebumps book. I love book. Goosebumps. And my sister would always get the Fear Street, because my sister's three years older than me. Mm-hmm. So she did the fear street i did the goosebumps and then when i got older i read all of her fear street books and they're they were pretty freaky like they were yeah scary for a teen book they were scary yeah because i like watched the movie goosebumps with like jack Jack black Black, it was funny and then watching like fear street i was like how is this the same person (laughs) very different yeah yeah so that is true it was it's very bloody very good yeah so all right highly recommend also but you did enjoy scream yeah yeah and like i love that my favorite thing about scream is it's like very 90s right because it's like very 90s fashion it's very 90s like references and sometimes but it holds up yeah because there's some movies that like because recently like my best friend was talking about she's all that and i was like i've never seen that i love she's all that yeah my boyfriend doesn't hold up 
He yeah, my boyfriend tried but putting it, it. He tried putting it on for me the other night, and I was just like, no interest. Yeah, scream. I actually had interest because I was Correct. like, oh shit, what's gonna happen next? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. with like, she's all that. I was like, it's so predictable because it's such a typical '90s teen drama. Yeah, I love she's all that though. I do love she's all that, and I will never forget when I was with my ex. Jovi had come down to visit. This was before you were living down here in Florida. You had come to visit, and you, me, and him watched she's all that and for like the whole rest of your trip all we did was quote she's all that oh my god it was really funny well because they were talking about there's a new one like he's He's all all that that. yeah and it's like her son Mm -hmm. but i was just like i've never seen the first one so how many times could you do the same movie over and over well and that's the whole thing is like uh yeah seriously though i will say so i haven't watched he's all that but i did watch on youtube uh trixie and katya who are my favorite drag queens they have a a series on YouTube called Netflix Queens Who Like to Watch. And it's the two of them sitting there watching shows on Netflix. And it's oh. sponsored by Netflix. So it's like all authorized by them. And all they did was like rag on the movie. It made me want to watch it even more because it was pretty hysterical. I feel like that'd be something really fun to do. Like just sit there and do commentary on stupid movies? Yeah. Yeah. I love watching that stuff. My boyfriend's like, I don't understand it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I love it. Mm-hmm. My one of okay, so I got you into Nick Deramo Deramio mm-hmm. on YouTube. He does that. He's very funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I also enjoy Jamie French on YouTube. She does the same thing. She does makeup movies, makeup movies and whatever, Mondays. And hers are very funny too. So I do recommend finding some of those on YouTube. They're good. Yeah. Yeah. So scream. Red yeah. right hand. That's such a good movie. I love scream. Mm. All right. Well, I guess I'm going to go ahead oh, and yeah. jump into my sorry. bed crime story. We have more to talk about. Yes, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into my bed crime story. I don't know if you can tell. Dang. I wrote basically a novel. She thick. Yeah, she she thick. She thick. So I'm so fucking excited to tell this story. I'm a little nervous to tell this story because I have very um, strong beliefs about things that happen in the story. I have very strong opinions about it. I'm going to share my opinions and I want our listeners to remember that these are strictly my opinions, that I am not a profesh, right? I just have opinions about the um, details of the story. So um, I'm going to try to be as neutral as possible and then pepper some of my opinions in there. But I'm super excited to tell the story. The story was also suggested to us by one of our listeners, Asami from the UK. So thank you, Asami, so much for the suggestion. Um, hey, girl, hey. Hey, girl, hey. And uh, I, I even said to her in the email back, I was like, this has been on my list. And I, I know I say that like all the time. This has been on my list since the very beginning. But this has this been, really on has been on your list since the very beginning. Um, I'm going to tell the story of the Menendez brothers. Which I'm very excited <gasps> because it keeps popping up for me. And I don't want to... L- like, I don't want to look at any of it because I want you to be the one that tells me about it. Let me tell you. Nikki, I don't know anything about this. My story is thick. It is long. I go into detail. You are going to know a lot of information about the Menendez family and the Menendez brothers and the crime by the time we are done with our session today. I'm taking you guys to school. I'm very excited. Yes. So um, I only have two sources today. One was Wikipedia and that really acted as like my fact checking. But I found online and I'm so excited about it. I wound up bookmarking it on my browser because I'm so stoked to be able to go back to this resource. Um, Core TV, which of course now is True TV, 
they have all of their crime library archived on their website. Oh. And whenever a huge um, case was taking place, they had one of their writers write like a long form article detailing like every single detail of the story from start to finish. Very nice. It was a 25 chapter article that I read as the resource of this. Um, The woman who wrote its name was Rachel Pergament. So I apologize if I am saying that wrong. Rachel Pergament for court tv uh like i said it's called true crime or crime library um so like i said i'm super stoked to use that in the future because i mean detailed detailed so okay let's get started here we go here we go i'm also now completely obsessed with the menendez brothers and the family so that's all i've been consuming as far as true crime for the last like three weeks The patriarch family of the Menendez family, Jose, was born in Cuba in 1944. His parents were not rich, but they definitely had status in Cuba because both his father and his mother were star athletes and well-known athletes in their area. So his father owned an accounting firm and was a well-known soccer player. And his mother was a swimmer who was actually elected to Cuba's Sports Hall of Fame. So very well known. Like I said, not a lot of money, but a lot of status. So they held like this very privileged place in their society. He was the youngest of three children. So he had two older sisters. He was the only boy and the baby of the family. So he was really um, doted on by his mother specifically. At the age of 16, uh, Jose did come to the United States. Fidel Castro came into power. And his parents were seeing economic changes within their own lives. They wanted to make sure that their kids were taken care of um, and that they were in a better, more stable environment. So they sent Jose to the United States to live with his older sister's fiance in Pennsylvania. Jose's parents also eventually fled Cuba and came to America themselves. His mother came in 1961 and his father a short time after that. And they settled in New York City. So Jose comes to America. He doesn't know the language. He doesn't have any money, but he was determined to become a success. So he wanted to be that American dream. Because of his financial struggles, he realized that he was going to be unable to achieve his lifelong dream of attending and graduating from an Ivy League university. That's all he dreamed of. He was very, very bright. And that's all he dreamed of was getting this like above excellent education. Ivy League, like Ivy League is like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Yeah. So Jose was determined that if he couldn't go to Ivy League, that if he ever had children, they would achieve his dream in his place. So Jose continued the, I guess, tradition, family tradition of athleticism, and he took up swimming as well. Tradition, tradition. Uh, just a little fiddler on the roof for um, Jose. I was like, what in the hell just happened? <laughs> Nikki got a little confused. There. I was like, Jovi's like doing this like body move <laughs> and like. Charlie just totally broke out in song. Hey, man. I was like, a fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? Well, in our little village of Anatevka, I can, like, do the whole monologue. Anyway. What is that from? Fiddler on the Roof. It's a musical. Oh, okay. I'm like. Yeah. We did it in high school. Oh, okay. I was the female lead, and I played Golda. (laughs) Anyway. So, um. (laughs) Whew. Jose (laughs) took on the tradition of athleticism in the family, and he also began to swim. And he wound up earning a swimming scholarship to Southern Illinois University. And it was there that he met and fell in love with Kitty Anderson. I love that name. So Mary Louise Anderson, 
known as Kitty. She went by Kitty her entire life. She was born in 1941 in a suburb of South, uh, a suburb South of Chicago. She was the youngest of four children and a very comfortably middle-class family. From the outside, the Anderson family appeared very loving and very close, but as we have learned in a lot of these stories, this was of course far from the truth. Um, apparently Kitty's father was physically abusive to their mother at times in front of the children. He would, he would hurt her. And eventually he did begin to abuse the children as well. So Kitty's parents do eventually divorce and this caused Kitty to become incredibly depressed and withdrawn in her childhood. Um, the divorce turned her mother into a very like bitter woman, very angry woman. Mm -hmm. So this really, you know, turned Kitty off and made her very withdrawn. She wound up not speaking to her father for years after he left. He got remarried, had other children, kind of got this new family. You know, eh, we hear that a lot, I guess. Yeah. Um, she came to believe that divorce was the worst thing that could happen to a woman. So she was very, um, she held onto that belief very closely that divorce is like the last possible thing you would ever do. So Kitty attended Southern Illinois University, and during her career there at the school, she worked in the university's broadcasting department, where she learned to produce radio and TV dramas. She wanted to produce, uh, pursue a broadcasting career after she graduated. Um, and it was when she was a senior at SIU that she met Jose Menendez. So she was a senior. He was, uh, I do believe, a freshman. She was an older woman. She was a little cougar. Mm, okay. She was a little cougar. Um, Jose and Kitty's relationship caused problems for both of their families. So... Kitty was Kitty's family was not so happy that she fell in love with this Cuban immigrant. Uh, there was definitely a what, was a it, prejudice to that. It was the at this time we probably are looking at the sixties. Yeah, um, so there was definitely some prejudice to that. Okay, um, and Jose's family thought that Kitty was beneath their social standing because her parents were divorced, and they also believed that at the age of nineteen, Jose was too young to get married. Now. Um, they kind of decided to go a different way. And when Kitty graduated, Jose and Kitty eloped and secretly married in 1963. Aww. So after their marriage, I love that. yeah, after their marriage, Jose and Kitty moved to New York City. So Jose gave up his scholarship at Southern Illinois. He transferred to Queens College in New York. Um, Kitty found a job teaching grade school. And during the early years of their marriage, uh, Kitty's dreams of working in broadcasting did begin to fade. She decided to kind of throw all of her weight behind supporting Jose's career. In 1967, Jose graduated from Queens College with a CPA degree. So he had his degree as an accountant. And he went to work for Coopers and Librand, which was an international accounting firm. Can, uh, Kitty continued to teach in the grade school where she was working. Only two years later, 1969, Jose was sent to Chicago to audit Lion Container, which was a client of the accounting firm. And Jose impressed the management of Lion Container so much that they offered him a job as the company's controller. He was only 25 years old. Wow. So he just really had, like I said, brain on his shoulder, uh, uh, you know, brain in his head. He was a smart guy. He knew his job. He knew his stuff. And he was incredibly impressive as a young man. So Jose and Kitty picked up and they moved to Hinsdale, uh, Illinois, with their infant son, Joseph Lyle, born on January 10th, 1968, who, of course, is Lyle Menendez. He went by his middle name. Kitty became a full-time mother, stay-at-home mom. She left working, and Jose got to work by turning um, Lion Container into a profitable company. Only two years after this, 1970, Jose was already named president of Lion Container. Damn. Um, yeah. But the title didn't last long because he and the chairman of the board fought a lot over the direction of the company. So he was ousted. 
1971, Jose went back to work, and now he was working at Hertz as an executive in the car leasing division. So Hertz, Hertz rent a car. Yeah. The new job brought the Menendez family from Illinois back to the East Coast, where they settled in New Jersey. Whoop, whoop. Um, Jose and Kitty's second son, Eric, was born on November 27th, 1971. In 1973, Jose became Hertz's chief financial officer. Ooh. Um, he continued to rise through Hertz ranks. And in 1979, when he was only 35, he became Hertz's worldwide general manager. Damn. Yeah. It was during his time at Hertz that Jose earned a reputation for being somewhat abusive towards his subordinates. So he was a very domineering boss, very demanding. You said he Jose was, was? Jose was, yes. Oh, okay. So he was not so kind to his employees. Oh, no. This reputation definitely followed him until the end of his life. In 1980, a new president of Hertz was named and Jose was reassigned to the entertainment division of RCA, who owned Hertz, which I did not know that. I didn't know that. That RCA Records owned Hertz Rent-A-Car. The things that own other things are just like... Right, like how is Hertz Rent-A-Car a subsidiary of RCA? Yeah. Like it's just But then again, if you look at like the Disney company and then the weird things that they're... Yeah involved in yeah it's very strange they own all these like different companies that you're just like huh yeah it's very weird so in 1981 jose joined the record division of rca which was at the time really struggling so in the early 80s at this time rca had a lot of recording artists on their docket who were older recording artists Mm -hmm. who were big names so they were getting paid a lot of money but they weren't as successful anymore what jose wanted to do was try and help improve their roster and he did that by signing the eurythmics and duran duran to to the roster he even actually signed jefferson starship as well so he got these really big early 80s like marquee names to join rca to help to bring their reputation back up again but it wasn't long before his integrity was called into question to make sales appear larger than they actually were jose would ship large quantities of albums to record stores that they didn't order in 1986 alone rca was forced to honor 25 million dollars in returned albums yeah in 1980 oh i just said that in 1985 at the age of 41, Jose had risen to become the executive vice president and chief operating officer of RCA RCA Records Worldwide Operations. Even after doing that? That was, it was actually the year before. Oh, uh, okay. But no matter how hard he tried, he was unable to turn RCA Records around because he kept doing these things that were just below board, you know? Um, in 1986, at about the same time that Jose's career at RCA was coming to an end, Kitty found out about Louise. So Louise was a woman with whom Jose was having an affair with since 1978. Stop. Yeah, so at this point, he was with her for eight years. Louise and Jose traveled together and entertained as a couple in Louise's ho- townhouse in <gasps> Manhattan. Yeah, like very openly having this affair. No. Mm-hmm. How did it take her so long? Well, okay, never mind. Sorry. You figure she was the, in New Jersey. She was is, raising yeah. the two kids. He was up in Manhattan traipsing around with Louise. I asked know? this, but then I forgot, like, this isn't current days. Yeah, it's not like she's looking totally at emails. Like, and, yeah, exactly. Or hearing his phone ring in the middle of the night. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Jose cared very deeply for Louise, but he never gave any thought to leaving Kitty. He also never considered ending his relationship with Louise either. Um, Jose told Kitty that Louise and other affairs were carried out over the years. So he came clean, told her all about, told her all about his relationship with Louise and other people that he was involved with. 
dog. Yes. So this sent Kitty into a depressive spiral. And oh, it would have sent me into a fucking rage. I'd have been like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and she talked about possibly even committing suicide. Mm. Yeah. So through his contacts at RCA, Jose was able to find a position as president of Live Entertainment in California. So Live Entertainment was a video distribution company. So basically when uh, movies moved from the movie, movie theaters to being distributed to home video, they needed a company to do that. So Live Video was uh, the distribution company that That's he so started weird. working for. I know. Um, Jose jumped at the chance to become involved in the film business. He knew that that came with a lot of status and he did not hesitate to uproot his entire family and move them from the East coast all the way to LA. Kitty wasn't exactly excited about the move. She had spent the last 16 years building a life, building a life in, in, in New Jersey. Um, you know, she had a big group of friends that she cared for that cared about her. The kids were in school. Like there was, they had this established life. Um, and especially to be going through all that and then you're going to move them correct. completely out of comfort. Exactly, exactly. So, and Jose and Kitty had recently even purchased a home where they were living in Princeton, New Jersey, and Kitty considered it her dream house. I, I saw like overhead video of it in the one documentary I was watching. It was beautiful. There was like a lake behind it. It was a gorgeous, Aww. big, sprawling mansion in Princeton. Um, but Jose decided that it would be in Kitty and Eric's best interest to move to California with him, and they settled in Calabasas. Lyle remained behind in Princeton mm. to attend college because he had just finished school. So he was going to go to school. He stayed on the East Coast. Um, Jose, Kitty, and Eric moved to California, settled in Calabasas, home Which of is, the Kardashians. Those are fake. <laughs> so at least Jose kept his word of sending one of his kids to... Oh, we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. <laughs> was it a, uh, Aunt Becky scheme? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, okay. no. No, no, no. I couldn't think of what her real name is. <laughs> Aunt Becky. Aunt Becky. Um, when the brothers were young, Jose had rules for everything. So he had rules for what they were eating, who they could spend time with, what they did, what they read, what they watched. Every single thing that they did, Jose had to approve of. Every single hour of every single day was scheduled and accounted for. So Jose and Kitty didn't even like consider that they were dealing with little kids. So these, there were children at the time and kids are developing their own personalities. They mm -hmm. want to have their own friends, do their own things, be who they are, whoever they're going to be. And they wouldn't even consider that they themselves could be flawed, like as human beings. Jose and Kitty wanted this perfect, picture perfect American dream family, American dream life. The pressures of meeting Jose's demands, of course, were uh, taxing on Lyle and Eric, to say the least. Both brothers developed stutters, they developed stomach Aww. pains, and they had a habit of grinding their teeth. Both brothers also developed nasty temper, so they would just snap at the drop of a hat. The brothers' friends would comment that Lyle and Eric were extremely close, but that their personalities were very different, which I can completely relate to. My sister is my absolute best friend. Her and I are complete opposites. Lyle was described as aloof and witty. So very like easy come, easy go and funny and witty. And Eric was described as sensitive and quiet. So it's funny because like, I guess my personality would be a little bit more like Lyle. My sisters would be a little bit more like Eric. Um, Lyle was also described as having a stronger personality, which I do that have that as well. Even though like as we get later in the story, you're going to be able to tell that I have a my heart goes out more to Eric than it does to Lyle. I have like a soft spell and my and sister's Eric's, my best friend. So I guess that kind of makes sense. Eric's the, Eric's younger. the younger one. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Eric often told his friends how much he admired his little brother, which I'm sure my sister admires me because, I mean, I'm pretty fucking awesome. So, <clears throat> um, so at the dinner table, Dang, Joey. Well, you know, that's whatever. So <laughs> at the, at the dinner table, um, Jose would grill the kids when they were sitting there eating and like challenge their knowledge. They would ask them, he would ask them about current events. He would ask them about books they were reading and subjects like politics and general things going on in the world. Like, Again, little kids. And as they got older, the questions became more and more difficult and more and more complex. Jose also told his children that they were expected to choose a sport and choose one that they would excel in. He encouraged them to choose a sport that could be played solo so they didn't have to rely on anyone else to be successful. By the time, yeah, by the time Lyle was 12 and Eric was nine, they began playing tennis and both of them were fantastic tennis players. In 1979, while still in New Jersey, the Menendez boys attended Princeton Day School, which is a pretty prestigious um, primary school in Princeton. Lyle developed problems academically pretty early on when he was in the sixth grade. His teacher found that he was not well prepared for his lessons. He didn't really have the ability to concentrate. Uh, teachers felt that both Lyle and Eric had learning problems, but so of like course ADHD. Was, yeah, or just they were not paying attention. They were just oh, okay. they were kids, kids. exactly. They were kids, exactly. And Jose would not accept that they were flawed. It like it could not possibly be their fault. Um, the teachers noticed that the homework that the brothers were turning in was far better than the work that they would complete in class. So hint, hint that parents were doing their work for them. Teachers also noticed that the brothers were very immature compared to their classmates. At the age of 14, Lyle still wet his bed and played with stuffed animals. I mean, I did play with Barbies until I was like 13. So yeah, yeah it's just sad. I still play with stuffed animals. I mean, I, I sleep with a stuffed animal, but I don't, like, play with... You'll see later on when they talk about, like, he, like, plays with stuffed animals. He, like, finds say, uh, comfort and company with his stuffed animals. So, Jose dreamed that Lyle would attend an Ivy League college, like I mentioned before. Lyle told his friends that he wanted to skip college altogether, and he wanted to open a oh. restaurant. <laughs> so, he's like, fuck it, I want to open a restaurant. But Jose would not even entertain thoughts of anything less than an Ivy League education for his kids. So when Lyle initially applied for Princeton in 1986, he was rejected, which, I mean, when you think about it, kind of makes sense. He was a less than average student. Yeah. You know, he, other than tennis, it didn't seem like he was really involved in other things. At least there was no indication that he was. So it kind of makes sense that he wasn't um, accepted to Princeton right away. So he enrolled in a local community college and submitted another application to Princeton for the following year in 1987 school year. While Lyle waited to hear back from Princeton, he met and began to date a woman named Jamie Pesersek, um, a waitress at a restaurant in Princeton. So Jamie was also a tennis player. She was five years older than Lyle was. Kitty and Jose were not fans of Jamie um, because they felt that Jamie was only dating Lyle because he was the son of wealthy, fa- wealthy parents. Do you not go back to what you guys were dealing oh, with? Oh, just wait. Just wait. It's even worse. The hypocrisy is even worse, I should say. Well... There's a lot of things that are even worse. Lyle was accepted to Princeton in 1987, but during the summer of 1987, Lyle and Jamie announced that they were getting engaged. So this announcement pissed Jose off. At seven, at 19, Jose felt that Lyle was too young to be married. Oh. Which is exactly how the fuck old he was when he met and married his wife, Kitty. 
So it's like the hypocrisy, like the hypocrisy of it all is just incredibly frustrating. Shortly before Lyle was to begin Princeton, Jamie moved to Alabama to teach tennis and Lyle followed her. So Jose was upset. He was afraid that Lyle was going to decide to not start Princeton in the fall. So he arranged to secretly sponsor Jamie on a European tennis tour, thinking that she'd go off to Europe and Lyle would be left to stay here and go to Princeton. But of course, Lyle follows her to Europe. Well, the relationship does fall apart. Lyle comes back home and he winds up beginning his first semester at Princeton. But during that first semester at Princeton, Lyle was accused of plagiarism. He was suspected of copying a lab partner's uh, homework and it was turned into the officials on campus. Lyle stated that he had missed a bunch of assignments. He didn't want to miss another one because he knew he was going to get in trouble. And the weekend before the assignment was due, he had traveled to California to visit his family and left his notebook at the airport. So when he got back, he asked his lab partner to help him with the assignment. But because the answers were so similar and probably not up to par of his normal performance, it was singled out and sent up for review. So... At first, Lyle and Jose did not think that there were going to be serious consequences. They figured that slap on the wrist and we would continue. But after a four hour hearing, the disciplinary committee deliberated and found out that or and found Lyle guilty of plagiarism and suspended him for one year. So after learning of the outcome, of course, yeah, after learning of the outcome, of course, Jose gets on a plane and he flies to Princeton and has a meeting with the president of the university. Jose argues that this is just one homework assignment. It's not a large part of his grade. But the president informed Lyle that he could return to Princeton in 1988 in good standing. Lyle was upset. He was humiliated, which I can totally understand. You you did fuck up, but I can understand too being embarrassed and not wanting to continue at Princeton. He wanted to transfer to UCLA or even University of Pennsylvania, but Jose would not hear of it. He only wanted him to stay there. Only wanted him to stay there. So during the year that Lyle was out of school, Jose put him to work at live entertainment out in California. Um, And Lyle was resented at live entertainment, but not because he was the boss's son. He was resented because he like didn't do anything. (laughs) He was like a shitty worker. That's usually how. Yeah, he was a shitty worker. So he was remembered um, by his coworkers as showing up late, ignoring orders, not paying attention. And on really nice, warm, sunny days, he would just skip work and go play tennis. You mean he was uh, sick? (laughs) But not sick enough to play tennis. Um, eventually one of Jose's employees went to him and complained about Lyle. So Jose said to him, he's like, okay, well, what would you do if Lyle wasn't my son? He's like, well, I'd fire his ass. So they fired his ass. During the spring of 1989, Lyle begins to date, um, a model named Christy. Christy was nine years older than Lyle was. And again, this relationship upset Jose and Kitty. But there was another issue that was upsetting Jose even more. Lyle wanted to, he was continuing to say that he wanted to leave Princeton and come to UCLA. So you figure this was after his first full year of Princeton. He was still harping on, I I just want to leave. I want to come home. Um, Jose was not again, supportive of his desire to return back home. So he kept telling him he needed to return to Princeton. So we're going to kind of backtrack again. I want to go back in time to now where Eric was little and kind of come up in years with Eric. So when Jose, Kitty and Eric moved to California in 1986, Eric was a sophomore in high school. So he was enrolled in Calabasas High and he was able to really find his own identity. Now that he was separated from Lyle, they weren't at Princeton Day School together. He didn't have his older brother to 
be compared to, he was really able to kind of come into his own. Yeah. And at Calabasas High, he befriended um, a kid named Craig Signorelli. So Craig was the captain of the tennis team and Eric was the number one ranked player on the team. So the two of them like broed out. They spent a good deal of time. <laughs> broed out. I didn't even write they that down. That's just like they broed out. That's a bro time. You just said it so casually, like <laughs> well, they it was did. Just like Well they did bro out. So they spent a great deal of time together and they actually wound up reading this so this is so high school. Um, they wrote a screenplay together. <gasps> and mm-hmm. what was it about? Mm, intrigue. So the screenplay was called Friends. Not like which the of TV course, show? well, no, because this is about a, a decade before the show was a thing. But I thought that was kind of funny. It was called Friends, but the script was a thriller about a son from a wealthy family who murders everyone to get his hands on his family's money before he himself could be killed. Oh, cue the bum bum bum. <clears throat> I mean, I'm not sure how this ends, but, <laughs> but I I'm have assuming. a feeling. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> in July 1988, this is the summer where Lyle is home. Eric and Lyle begin breaking into homes in Calabasas. <gasps> it was very like bling ring. Very bling ring. I want to rob. So the homes. <laughs> that movie is so bad. Did you ever see Bling Ring? I just no, but I, I've, I've heard about it's it. so bad. It's because so bad. I saw the TikTok of the Alexis. The one girl who isn't it isn't it based off of a true story? Oh, it's a true story. Yeah, because yeah, mm-hmm. the one girl was like crying because she's like, I wasn't wearing Louis Vuitton. Oh my god! So <laughs> I saw that the other day and I was like, what the fuck? I will tell you. So again, this is another movie that Jovi and I watched, um, and we decided what because we love Emma Watson. Emma Watson was in it, so we're like, yeah, let's watch it. So we're watching this movie. It is so bad. It is oh, so yeah. bad. It's so dumb. And there's this one part where Emma Watson, in her really bad American accent, because I love her, she's a great actress, cannot put on an American accent to save her goddamn life, right? Um, so she's but in there okay. and she's like, I want to rob. I'm like, what? That's like the line of the movie. And that's really kind of all I can remember. But basically, it was it's a true story about these kids who were in high school and they wanted like this status. So they would break into homes of celebrities because they would find mm-hmm. on social media when they were out of town, break into their houses and st- Paris Hilton got hit like three times by these kids and they would steal all of her shit in her house. Did I just you, want to rob. Did you see, did you see that? No, that, I didn't. I have to, I'll have to look it up. Oh my God, I'll send it to you later. Okay. I was literally fucking like, I was like, this can't be real. <laughs> I was like, this really can't be real, but no, it was it's real. real. It's real. It was real. So they started breaking into homes in Calabasas, homes by, owned by parents of their friends. They just wanted to rob. The brothers had found... Um, they had considered this an easy source of spending money because the alternative was ask your father for the money and then get a lecture about why it's important to work hard to earn your own money. So to them, it was easier for them to go rob houses and get their own money than have to ask their father. The amount of money and jewelry that Lyle and Eric stole was estimated to be more than $100,000. So it was large enough to be classified as a felony offense of grand theft burglary. So the L.A. County Sheriff's detectives who investigated the burglaries got a break in the case when Eric was stopped for driving violation in Calabasas and stolen property was found in his trunk. So Jose was pissed, which I mean, I'd be pissed. uh, Yeah, I would be pissed, too. And Jose, but Jose didn't want his son to spend any time in jail. So again, I mean, I guess I kind of get that. So he hired Gerald Shalif, who was a well-respected criminal defense attorney to represent them. The attorney made an agreement with the L.A. County District Attorney's Office to absolve Lyle of any fault 
as long as Eric took all the responsibility because Eric was a juvenile and had no previous record. So that's because the deal they, they worked gonna... out. So that's the deal they worked out. And the only uh, punishment that the two boys incurred, Eric had community service and both of them had to undergo psychological counseling. Yeah. $100,000 worth grand theft burglary probation for one and psychology, uh, psychological counseling for both. That's fucked. Crazy. So Jose, (laughs) Jose blames Eric's friends instead of Eric for the burglaries, just as he blamed Princeton for Lyle's plagiarism rather than Lyle. And so then Jose starts uh, complaining about living in Calabasas, that it's the friends are a bad influence. And he told people at live entertainment that the family was receiving harassing telephone calls, which I mean, I can kind of understand. It's obviously the talk of the town. Everybody knows that your kids rob their houses. So they started calling them and leaving harassing phone calls. Live entertainment is still around today. I do believe so. Okay. That's like, I think they're they're live nation. Oh, okay. Correct. Um, Jose's tires were slashed on his car. (gasps) So he told his associates that he felt that they needed to leave, that his family would be safer living in Beverly Hills. So they left and they went to 90210. Literally. Huh. No, literally, that's where they went. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, it makes, like, Calabasas. Calabasas Beverly. to 90210. Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah. Beverly Hills. That's mm-hmm. where I wanna mm-hmm. be. Me, me, me. Living in Beverly. Are you looking to see if live entertainment is live nation? Live nation is not live entertainment. Live oh. nation and Ticketmaster are... Oh. They're they're BFFs. There's, yeah, but Live Nation. Okay, and I'm not. Dis- I know that they are BFFs now, but I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. But I always thought Live Nation used to be its own entity, and Ticketmaster it bought was. them. But I'm curious if Live Entertainment turned into Live Nation, and then Live Nation was bought by Ticketmaster. I don't know. It could yeah, be. No, I, don't I don't know. It doesn't have anything prior to 2009. Mm. So maybe at one point, yeah. Mui mui Yeah. Mm. All right. So they moved to Beverly Hills. Like Beverly the Hills. Beverly Hillbillies. We're moving out to Beverly Hills, that is. Wow. I know. Hills. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Movie stars. Okay. So by the beginning of the summer of 1989, the problems were mounting, specifically in Lyle's life. He was put on academic probation at Princeton due to his awful grades. And he was also placed on disciplinary probation because he had thrown a party at the residence hall where he was living and pool tables at the residence hall were damaged. His driver's license in New Jersey had been suspended. Now, I could not find why his driver's license in New Jersey was suspended, but who knows why? And Lyle also caused the family's privileges at their country club in Princeton to be revoked because he decided that taking a nighttime golf cart cruise around the club's greens would be a good idea. So he like caused all of this damage to the greens on the golf, the golf. Green. Yeah. What is it called? Golf course. course. Yeah, like course. <laughs> the golf thingy. I'm just making like a circle. With I was going to say, I was like a circle? A, a golf circle. I mean, it sounds Oh, fun. no. It sounds fun as fuck, but, oh. like, you're also going to get in trouble for yes, it, too. Yeah. Yeah. My ex's, like, really good friend, her whole family had, like, a, uh, what is it? Like, a, a golf course? A golf circle. A golf circle that uh-huh. people used to go to, and we used to get the little, like, things to go out and ride the little trails. It's fun. It was a lot of fun. Good times. Mm-hmm. I was, I got really mad at my father this year because he was running a charity golf tournament for his thing, that his 
organization he's part and of. And he didn't tell you about no, no, it? No, no, no. I volunteered and I told him, I'm like, I'm only going to volunteer if I get to drive a golf cart. Like, I will come and I will spend the whole day volunteering, but I need to drive a golf cart. I get to drive a golf cart. He put me on a different job and I was very upset. I was really Ooh. mad. So I told him, I told him, I was like, all right, well, I got all my volunteer hours. I I'm thank, thank you. I appreciate it. But I will only do this next year if I'm driving a GD golf cart. Wait, volunteer hours for what? For work. Like, we can... I get volunteer hours at work and stuff like that. Sorry, I continued researching the live entertainment thing because it's going to bother me. Mm -hmm. Live entertainment is completely separate. Defunct. Okay. Okay. Is it defunct? Because live entertainment is just movies and TV. Ah, okay. Gotcha. has nothing to do with... Gotcha. Concerts and stuff like that, like Live Nation. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thank you, Jovi. Thanks, Jovi. You're welcome. Thanks, Google Queen. Jose and Kitty were now, they felt like they were at their wit's end. They didn't know what was going on with their sons. Eric with the burglaries, Lyle with all of his issues kind of mounting all at one time. So Jose and Kitty were so desperate to drive home to their sons how serious all of these infractions were that they decided to use the only thing that they felt would really get through to them. And they threatened to rewrite their wills and leave the brothers out of their wills completely. Sucker, sucker now. So... As the summer of 1989 comes to a close, tensions in the house mounted. Kitty began to lock the door to her bedroom at night, and supposedly she kept two twenty-two rifles in her closet. (gasps) She took away Eric and Lyle's keys to the house, so when the brothers came home from a night out, Kitty would have to let them into the house even if she had been asleep. But how did, just from knocking on, because it's Mm -hmm. not like... I was going to say, it's not like 2021 where you you can just call on a cell phone. Yeah, nope. Um, So it was apparent that something was frightening her, that something was scaring Kitty. And it was likely caused by something that the brother's psychotherapist, Jerry Ozeal, had told her. So Kitty's psychologist was the one who recommended Jerry Ozeal when Eric and Lyle were ordered to undergo the counseling. And shortly after Eric started his treatment with Ozeal, he had given permission to Ozeal to discuss the contents of his sessions with his parents, with Jose and Kitty. Why would you do that? I don't know. I He was a minor, so he it has to be up to him, and I'm surprised that he did, but he did. On July 19th, 1989, Kitty went to her therapist and told him that she feared her sons were, quote, sociopaths. Now, at the time in 1989, and this is all speculation from Charlie herself, <laughs> At the time in 1989, I don't feel as though the word sociopath was thrown around as often as it is now. No. Right? Usually mm-hmm. if you're calling somebody, you're calling them a psychopath or a psycho or whatever, right? Sociopath was a very clinical term. So I think what they're saying here is because she used the word sociopath and she even said to her therapist that she was concerned her sons were, quote, narcissistic. They lacked consciences and they exhibited signs that they were sociopaths. So it was very like clinical terminology she was using so the theory here is she was afraid because ozeal told her that these were things that he was exhibiting so she was afraid that this is what was going on with her son so she was afraid of them on supposedly this is all allegedly big old allegedly so on august 19th 1989 the menendez family chartered a boat from marina del rey and went shark fishing 
Only Jose stayed in the back of the boat and fished, however. Kitty went below and stayed in the boat's cabin, stating she was seasick. The brothers stayed to themselves on the bow of the boat. Later on, the captain of the ship would be like, it was, they were very strange that night. They were like barely speaking to each other. Nobody was looking at each other. The boys were like huddled on the bow of the boat, not talking to their parents. Like you wouldn't even be able to tell that they were a family. Because Kitty was probably like, what the fuck have yeah, I got like, myself into? It was just like, it was, it was crazy. So, 11.47 p.m. the next night, August 20th, 1989, a 911 call was received at the Beverly Hills Police Department. It was Lyle reporting that he and Eric had walked into the home to find Jose and Kitty shot to death. The 911 dispatcher described him as hysterical over the phone, and Eric could be heard in the background screaming and sobbing. When police arrived at the home, Eric and Lyle ran from the house and fell to the ground near the end of the driveway. The police tried to get information from them, but they were like too distraught to even speak. Police note that nothing had been removed from the home, that there was no signs of forced entry. So there was evidence that whomever did kill Jose and Kitty knew them. Lyle and Eric were taken to the police department for questioning. The police at the time did not consider them suspects um, and just really wanted to see if the brothers knew anything. So the brothers kind of started replaying their timeline for the day. So they state that in the afternoon they played tennis. Then they went shopping over at the Beverly Center. They met up with a friend around five o'clock in the evening to go to a local food festival. And then after that, they planned to go to a movie. So they went to go see Batman because the original Batman was in theaters. So they went to go see Batman. Um, and then they were going to meet up with their friends afterward to go get drunk at the Cheesecake Factory. Because <laughs> apparently oh. Cheesecake Factory was like a big thing then. Um, did you know that Cheesecake Factory is headquartered in Calabasas? I learned that doing my research for this. I did not know that. Yeah, it's, the, it's actually the biggest employer of jobs in the city of Calabasas. No shit. Is the Cheesecake Factory. That's crazy. Okay. Fucking facts. All right. Here he goes. Wow. Let's, the more you know. Okay, so wow. um, they were going to go to Cheesecake Factory. So what they wanted to do is they were going to swing by the house to get Eric's fake ID so he could drink too. Well, they get home to get the fake ID, and it was then that they arrive at the scene where their parents had been murdered. When they were asked who hated his parents enough to want to kill them, Lyle answered simply, maybe the mob. So Jose's autopsy took place first. Um, now, both of them suffered multiple gunshot wounds with a shotgun, okay? Um, but the primary wound to Jose, the, the mortal wound to Jose, was to the back of his head. And the wound was described as a gaping laceration that was five by four inches, large enough for adult, an adult to push their fist through. I, I have to say, why the fuck would the mob use a shotgun? Sorry, that's just we, where my we brain We learn went. they don't. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert, they don't. <laughs> um, soot was found in the wound, indicating that when the shot was fired, the gun was placed up against the back of Jose's <gasps> oh. head. Kitty's autopsy revealed that she had been shot, obviously, multiple times, but she was shot in the left cheek, which caused a one-inch hole in her face. She was also, there was additional wounds to her skull, fractures to her lower jaw, pellet wounds in her tongue. Um, a shot had lacerated her brain. Kitty had three wounds to her face. The most damaging was four inches. It extended from her right cheek across her nose to her left cheek, like basically a, a semicircle across her face. Um, their parents' murders affected Lyle and, 
and Eric in completely different lane. So Eric was unsure whether he wanted to actually begin to go to college. He was accepted to go to UCLA that September. Um, he had just graduated high school, by the way. Yeah. So he was trying to decide whether or not he wanted to go to UCLA or did he just want to kind of throw himself into tennis because it made him happy and it was something that could keep his mind off of what happened. Yeah. Lyle seemed a little bit more focused. He knew what he wanted to do. He was going to quit college and he was going to get that restaurant that he wanted to get from the very beginning. So four days after the murders, the brothers begin to spend a lot of money. Jeez. The brother shopping sprees were funded by Jose's personal life insurance policy of 65, I'm sorry, $650,000. Not 65000 650000 The brothers spent money on new cars, designer label clothes, and jewelry. Three days after the murders, the brothers spent $15,000 on Rolex watches and money clips. Bro, that is so spish. Now... When I was reading the article, she lumped all of the funds together. And again, I, I know I told you before that I have a softer spot for Eric than I do for Lyle. So I'm going to kind of come to Eric's defense in this moment. Eric spent a lot, a substantially less a lot, a amount of money than Lyle did. Um, so just to kind of give you an example, Lyle went out and bought a brand new car. He got, it, got a brand new Porsche 911 Carrera convertible. Eric bought a new Jeep Wrangler. Eric knows where it's at. <laughs> so, but like, again, just to kind of show the, not saying that he didn't spend his parents, his deceased parents money, but looking at the difference between their personalities, right? So like Lyle was spend, 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 and like dollar signs, dollar signs, where Eric was slightly more practical with. But what's the price difference between that Porsche? Oh, substantially. You figure oh, the Porsche, the Porsche, yeah. the Porsche even then was worth like $75,000. Oh, really? Yeah. So it's a substantial difference. At yeah. least a $50,000 difference mm-hmm. between the two. Mm-hmm. Wow. Lyle began investigating and, in, or not investigating. He didn't do that at all. Lyle began <laughs> investing in businesses, which, of like I said, was always his plan. Eric spent money on a private tennis coach to help improve his game. Okay, so Beverly Hills investigators watched as the brother started to throw all this money around. So... Kitty and Jose were murdered on August 20th, and by the end of that year, Lyle and Eric had spent more than a million dollars between the two of them. So police now were pretty sure that the brothers had something to do with the murders, whether they were the ones who did it themselves or got somebody to do it for them. They were pretty much convinced that they had something to do with it. Further piquing their suspicion, the police also learned that Kitty's computer had files erased from it so the brothers had hired a computer expert what the fuck to come in on august 31st to erase files on her computer one of the boy's friends i do believe it was lyle's friend told police that he had told him yes glenn um glenn his friend told police that lyle had told him that he erased the new will off of kitty's computer and then hired the computer expert to come in to erase all the evidence that it had been ever there and nobody would be able to retrieve it when did computers come out like for personal use uh we had a personal computer in our house in like 88 89 so and they were rich so they definitely had one i was like i was born in 89 so i'm just like i can only imagine like this giant brick of a computer oh yeah it was like a word processor she probably had it on like a og where actually wasn't even word at the time it was just word processor it was the one that had like the big giant square blinker oh my gosh good times we used to play (laughs) um i was really bad at math when i was kid. i'm still really bad at math actually that's just a fact about me and um 
So my parents bought me this computer game when I was a kid. It was called Word Munch. No. It was Word was it Word Munchers or Math Munchers? I don't know. But they were like aliens and they ate the <gasps> right answer. I think I played math that munchers, when right? I was or little. Muncher. Math Muncher? I don't remember. It was fun. Something Muncher. I want to say Word Muncher, but that makes no sense because it was math. It's Math Munchers. Math Munchers. Yeah, it was fun. It was like little... Just like that. They reminded me of... Okay, in... <laughs> this is so stupid. In... Little Mermaid. You know those little, like, the seaweed monsters? Yes! Garden? They remind me of them. They came up, arm, arm, and they would eat the right answer. <laughs> word munchers. Or month munchers, whatever. There might have also been a word munchers, but... I don't There's know. a muncher. There, there was a muncher, and it ate math. Did it look like this? Yes! <sighs> math munchers. Okay. So... <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, anyway... So Eric went to go see his psychiatrist, Ozeal, um, on October 31st, Halloween. During the session, Ozeal encouraged Eric to talk about everything that was going on. Um, Eric had expressed that he was really depressed. He was having suicidal thoughts. And a short time later, Eric said to Ozeal, we did it. We killed our parents. But so, he can... I'm going to talk... Uh, are you talking about doctor uh, patient privilege? Hold that thought. Okay. Nikki, I'm going to explain that right now. So he told Ozeal about the trip that the two boys took to San Diego to purchase to purchase shotguns and how they thought that they had committed, quote, the perfect crime. Now, not saying that they thought they committed the perfect crime, meaning that this was great, we're perfect, meaning that they thought they did enough to get away with it. Yeah. Perfect crime, which obviously they did not. They had been careful to clean up all the shotgun casings. They did not... They didn't obviously have to worry about fingerprints because it was in their house, so fingerprints are going to be there. Yeah. Um, when they were done cleaning up all the evidence or the, the shotgun casings, they drove Eric's car up to Mulholland Drive and then threw the shotguns into the canyon. Um, they had then headed to a gas station, dumping their blood-spattered clothes and shoes into a dumpster along with the shell casings. Now, on November 2nd, both Eric and Lyle went to Ozeal to meet with him. Lyle threatened Ozeal, telling him that he and Eric had considered killing him to keep their secret. Now, that is where doctor-patient privilege could be broken. Now, if previous, when Eric just told him that they did the murder, he went to the cops and said, hey, they confessed, he could have been sued for malpractice and it would have been thrown out of court. Okay. The minute that Lyle um, threatened his life, he could have went to the cops and it all would have been turned over to the cops as evidence. Because once you threaten and the life is at danger, you ha- you are able to report it and doctor-patient privilege is well, out the I window. Well, I always thought it was like, if, I mean, along with threatening, but if like, I mean, you can admit that you killed someone and they that can't you killed say someone. anything. The only time that they can report on you is if you threaten their life or you're threatening to kill yourself mm-hmm. or threatening to kill someone else that is already not killed yet. Oh. Yeah. But you can just admit, I murdered this person and this person. Oh, my God. I would hate to be a fucking psychiatrist. No wonder they have a high, like... I would love it. But no wonder why they have a high suicide rate, correct? Yeah. You have to hold everybody's fucking secrets in. I would love it. Tell me all the secrets. Anyway. So, Ozeal could have reported Lyle and Eric to the police, like I said. But instead, he made notes and tape recordings of all his his further sessions with the brothers. Oh... He was a little shady, shady, shady. On March 5th, 1990, so about, what, six months later ish. I'm not, I'm, that's I was quick only math. five months six later. Six months old. Five months later. 
The detectives received a break in the case when a woman named Judalon Smith, who was Oziel's lover, <gasps> came forward and confided in the police that Oziel told her everything. He told her what they said. So a search warrant was issued for Oziel's tapes of his sessions with the brothers, and they were taken in as evidence. So, again, totally fucked up because he told a third party. He could report to the police, but because he told this other person, th- that's correct. Jovi's like, yes, yes. <laughs> he fucked up. He done fucked up. You yeah. done fucked up, A.A. Ron? A.A. Ron. <laughs> so the police were really anxious to arrest Lyle because they had information that he was planning to leave Beverly Hills again. So they weren't sure if he was going to go to the East Coast or if he was leaving the country, but they knew he was planning on leaving. So (laughs) they they wanted to arrest the two of them together. But Eric was actually out of the country playing uh, tennis in Israel. He was in a tournament in Israel. Oh, on March 8th, 1990, Lyle was arrested driving with friends to the Cheesecake Factory for lunch. It's a theme. They really like cheesecake. I like cheesecake, too. Me, too. I've only actually ever been to the Cheesecake Factory once, though. I wasn't impressed. I love cheesecake, but I wasn't impressed with, like, oh, their see, food. There, I liked the salad that I got. Mm. I mean, let's be honest. You don't go there for, like... Food food. You go there for, like, drinks and, like, cheesecake. I mean, drinks and cheesecake are kind of my two favorite things. Yeah. These are a few of my favorite things. Okay. So, um, they were going to Cheesecake Factory. Lyle gets arrested. There was speculation, because Eric was overseas, that he would try and flee Israel mm-hmm. and go into hiding. But according to the Menendez family, little uh, uh, According to a Menendez family member, Eric was very dependent on Lyle. According to this relative, quote, Eric would follow Lyle to hell even if it meant leaving heaven to do so. Ooh, I thought that that was a very poignant quote. Yeah, that that's is. deep as fuck, that right? Is. That's why I had to put the full quote in there. Can I get I was that like, tattooed on me? I know, me? right? I'll follow you into hell if it means leaving heaven to get there. <laughs> Mic drop. So Eric's uncle, (laughs) Joey's dumped my shit. Eric's uncle advised him that the best thing for him to do was turn himself in. On March 11th, 1990, detectives met Eric at LAX where he was taken into custody. So they were arraigned on March 26, 1990. The courtroom was filled with reporters and supporters of both of the brothers, including Jamie Pasersik, who I mentioned earlier, right? Lyle's ex-girlfriend and Eric's tennis coach, Mark Heffernan. So Maria who said Maria Menounos totally was not there. I mean, she could have been, but not in my paper. Maria Menendez, Jose's mother and the brother's grandmother was also in the audience and they were support supported by a large number of Menendez family members. Point pointedly absent were Katie's family. The brothers waved and smiled at their friends and relatives, which was not a good look for the two of them. Oh um, God. yeah, did was not a good look. Both Lyle and Eric pled not guilty and they were held without bail pending their trial. So the Menendez brothers spent three years in the LA County men's jail waiting for their trials to begin. The brothers were segregated from other prisoners and housed in separate cells in the jail 7,000 section. This section housed high profile inmates such as Richard Ramirez, the night stalker and OJ Simpson. And yes, at some point in their stay, they were there with both of them. Wow. Questions. Mm-hmm. Why did they separate them from the general population? Because they were high profile. Because they it, were it high was profile. All over the fucking media. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, when you're high profile, people want to kill you when you're in there. Yeah, basically, yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So the brothers had. Okay, so the brothers had separate trials, kinda. 
They had their own defense attorneys. They also had their own juries, but it all happened at the same time. So at the defense table was were both brothers and their attorneys, and then there was two juries seated to try the case. One jury was deciding for Lyle. The other jury was deciding for Eric. Right? I know, very strange. Interesting. And on the prosecution side, there was two prosecutors. One was prosecuting Eric. One was prosecuting Lyle. At the same time? At the exact same time. But Is that normal? What? No, it's not normal. That's okay. weird. Right? I feel like that's more work than it needs to be. Uh, right? Yeah. So they each had their own high-powered defense attorney. Jill Lansing represented Lyle, and Leslie Abramson represented Eric. During a pretrial hearing on June 9th, 1993, Abramson said the defense would admit that the brothers had murdered their parents. The defense would try to prove to the jurors that it was that Jose and Kitty were murdered by Lyle and Eric, but yeah. it wasn't them who had to be held accountable. It was actually Jose and Kitty who had to be accountable for the Oh, actions. my God. Now we're going to get into the uh, meat and potatoes. So. Main course. The main course. So Abramson and Lansing would argue that the brothers had been instilled with feelings of fear for over a long period of time, going back many, many years. That the apparent athletic and spoiled rich sons who had each at one time in their lives considered becoming professional tennis players were victims of child abuse. Hmm. Aside from attorneys, uh, aside from the attorneys and the judge, there was one more person present at the trial and that was a television camera judge weisberg allowed court tv to provide a a television camera and broadcast the trial due to the intense public interest in the case and if i am not mistaken the menendez brothers trial was the first trial to ever be aired from gavel to gavel gavel on court tv it was like their first trial damn yes so the trial began on july 20th 1993 with the prosecution's opening statement laying out the case against Lyle. They described the brutality of the murders. Uh, There were six wounds total to Jose and ten wounds to Kitty. The prosecutor told the jury about the brother's spending sprees, which, of course, was another recurring theme throughout the entire trial. Mm -hmm. Um, The prosecutor discussed the Rolex watch purchases, Lyle's Porsche, um, apartments that they had rented together, Lyle's restaurant that he invested in, and Eric's tennis coach. Jill Lansing, uh, Lyle's attorney, began her opening statement by telling the jurors, jurors that Lyle and Eric Menendez killed their parents, that they're not disputing that it happened, that the only thing you are going to have to focus on in this trial is why it happened. Lansing told the jury that what we will prove to you is that the murders were committed out of fear. Quote, fear of two parents who were so brutal, so manipulative, so sexually perverse that they drove their own sons to the most desperate act of defilement. Lansing told the jury that the catalyst was Eric's revelation to his brother a few days before the killings that his father had been molesting him for 12 years. This revelation disturbed Lyle so thoroughly because he too had been molested by Jose from the ages of six to eight. Lansing described how Lyle had confronted Jose, but according to Lansing, Jose had told Kyle that, quote, nope, not Kyle. Why do I keep doing that? Jose told Lyle that, quote, he would do whatever he wanted to his son and that no one would threaten him. And he made it very clear to Lyle that this secret would never leave the family and that the people who held the secret and this power over him would not be allowed to live. Oh, shit gets fucking dark. 
So in her opening statement, Leslie Abramson went on to describe how Eric was groomed for his father's sexual gratification. She described various acts that Eric alleged were inflicted upon him by Jose. Abramson said that the brothers could not turn to Kitty for help and solace because all they found there was a disturbed woman who dished out more abuse, sexual, physical, and psychological. Abramson described how Kitty and Lyle had gotten into a screaming fight the week leading up to the murders and how Kitty had reached up and yanked Lyle's hairpiece off his head. Apparently, Lyle had lost most of his hair when he was 14 and wore a toupee because Jose had once told him that it was better for his image if it appeared that he had hair. What? Wow. Eric claimed that until his mother snatched his hairpiece off his head, he did not know that Lyle wore a toupee. And the shock of this discovery made Eric take Lyle into his confidence and he told him about the molestation. Abramson told Eric's jury how much he looked forward to attending UCLA and moving away from home. He thought it was like his escape. Like, I got accepted to UCLA. I'm going to finally get to leave this house and all of this abuse. But one week before the murders, Jose told Eric that he was forcing him to come home and sleep at home several times a week. So that way, Jose and Kitty could supposedly keep track of his schoolwork. Abramson said that Eric thought that this meant that the sexual abuse would continue. According to the defense, these revelations all of these revelations one right after another so all of lyle's problems the burglaries the hairpiece situation the um sexual abuse coming to light all of this stuff one right after another brought the brothers to a fever pitch the defense had the difficult task of trying to prove to the juries that the brothers were in imminent danger before they killed their parents under california law the imminent danger defense was the only way the brothers could completely be acquitted of the murders or have a chance of being convicted of manslaughter. To obtain either of these verdicts, the defense would need to prove two things. Number one, that Lyle and Eric had been in fear for their lives. And number two, that the, con- the conduct of their parents would have produced that same state of mind in any reasonable person. Lyle testified over a nine day period and his testimony was filled with stories about the alleged molestation he suffered from the ages of six to eight and the story that he himself had molested his own brother, Eric, when Eric was only five years old. He was displaying the same behaviors that his father had taught him. Both Eric and Lyle, yes, both Eric and Lyle cried frequently during Lyle's testimony. Lyle testified that at 13, he began, he came to believe that his father was molesting his brother, but he never said anything. Lyle testified that his father was so controlling and his mother was so emotionally unstable that he sought comfort in his own family of stuffed animals. Lyle testified that Kitty sexually abused him when he was 11 and 12. He claimed that he would touch her, quote, everywhere, even when his father was in the same bed with them. Lyle's testimony was powerful and rich in detail. His testimony built up to his description of the events leading up to the night of the murders. And he described shooting his father and then his mother for the jury. Jill Lansing asked Lyle why the brothers did not run away from home. And Lyle said that there was no use or they felt there was no use because his father was so powerful and he would have tracked them down and found them. And it would have been even worse. Lyle added that he and Eric believed that the police wouldn't believe them um, and wouldn't believe that men could be abused. Now I want to kind of add here, that later on jury members male jury members have said that they didn't believe that men could be abused in this way and the prosecutor herself in the trial said 
Men can't be raped. They lack the equipment. I'm sorry. Which I'm not going to justify with a response because it's a vile and disgusting statement to make. That's all I'm going to say. I don't even have words. Right. Like, like for m- such a stupid yeah. ass comment. Yes. Men can't. Nope. Okay. So. Consent is both ways. Awful. On September 27th, Eric began to testify. Eric's demeanor was, I mean, you watch footage of his testimony, especially at the very, very beginning, or especially when he's asked pointed questions about the molestation, and it's, I mean, he he cannot speak. Most of the time he looked, like, deranged. Um, And then he would move to sad and weeping. It was just, it was, it's heart-wrenching. Eric testified that he believed that his parents would kill him. He also said that Kitty seemed to have a, had magical powers that she knew where he went, who he was with and everything that he did. Like she knew all Eric's statement seemed difficult to believe, especially from a 22 year old man. Um, and it was basically part of their attempt to show that both Lyle and Eric had been like stunted in age by the control of their father and that neither brother were the age were the true age that they actually were. Basically, they were infantilized. They were still children, even though they were in their 20s. Yeah. Eric testified about killing his parents and the sexual abuse he suffered at Jose's hands. Prosecutor Bozanich was sarcastic and biting in her closing statement. She called Lyle and Eric, quote, spoiled, vicious brats who got the best defense daddy's money can buy. And at one point, she said of the defense... That, quote, for all the children who are severely abused and who become useful members of society, this defense is offensive. She's offensive. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. On January 13th, 1994, after 16 days of deliberation, Eric's jury announced that it was deadlocked and unable to reach an agreement on any of the counts. On January 25th, after deliberating for 24 days, Lyle's jury announced that it too was deadlocked. The juries for both brothers were polarized over whether the brothers were killers or victims. Mm -hmm. Judge Weisberg declared mistrials in both cases. Um, The imperfect self-defense theory was at the center of the defense in the trial. Um, And that was what was convincing some of the jurors on each side to vote to to convict the brothers of manslaughter instead of murder. So basically the imperfect self-defense, meaning that it wasn't a heat of passion self-defense. It was this long boiling point. So in April 1995, uh, Judge Weisberg ruled that the brothers would be retried together in front of a single jury this time. The retrial was postponed a number of times and began with jury selections in August 1995. Um, But... Opening statements began October 11th, 1995, only eight days after the verdict was read in the trial of O.J. Simpson. Now, I mention this because it's the same prosecutor's office that is prosecuting this case, as did prosecute their original case, and as did prosecute the O.J. Simpson case. They lost, technically, the first Menendez brother case, which was a huge high-profile case. Mm -hmm. They lost the O.J. Simpson case, which was a huge, gigantic, even more so high-profile case. Yeah. So now they have a second chance at getting a win against the Menendez brothers. Judge Weisberg did not allow much defense testimony about the sexual abuse claims and did not allow the jury to vote on manslaughter charges instead of murder charges. So it was either acquit or murder. 
Nothing in between. And like I said, he pulled back on how much of the sexual abuse they could speak about during the trial. I mean, that that's triggering and it's like that's trauma. Yes. Um, Leslie, the uh, Abramson, the one who was the uh, attorney for Eric, actually held a press conference after that hearing. and was like, it's as if he's handing the verdict over to the prosecutor already. That, Just that's like, exactly what it is. Yeah, like the, he basically completely steamrolled their entire. It's defense. like here's what this is the story, is, and you're taking my story away from me. You're literally because without that, mm-hmm. they do so look they like they're just killers. Mm-hmm. Because before you said all that, I was like, "What the fuck?" And I then know. they hear all that, and I'm like, "Dude, I, I don't know whether to be a like." I'm telling you this. I was I was texting with Jovi the other night. I was watching. I watched this beautiful six part miniseries and I'll tell it I'll tell you guys about it a little bit later but I kept texting her and I'm like I'm literally sitting here weeping yeah like it was every single episode my heart was breaking for these two and it's like I'm not saying that they shouldn't be punished I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished they killed their parents it's the truth but it's like the amount of trauma that leads someone up to the point of awful Feeling like that's that's, their only choice. Yeah. Yes, I know. It's awful. So the retrial lasted only 23 weeks and more closely resembled a regular murder trial. So it was a lot more somber, a lot more quiet. There were no, mm -hmm, there were no TV cameras allowed. Uh, So what's that? Six months. Five and change. Yeah. Yeah. Close to to six. On March 20th, after four days of deliberation, the jury convicted the Menendez brothers each of two counts of first-degree murder, as well as conspiracy to commit murder. Jurors also found that there were two special circumstances attached to the murders, lying in wait and multiple murder. So basically, Uh, yeah, I know. Because of the special circumstances, there were only two sentencing options, life in prison without the possibility of parole or death by execution. The same jury that found the brothers guilty of first-degree murder would deliberate after the second smaller trial, uh, called penalty phase, to determine the brothers' sentences, and on April 17, 1996, both Lyle and Eric Menendez were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The jury later said that the abuse defense was never a factor in their deliberations for the penalty phase, and that the jury decided to spare their lives because neither of them had felony, uh, felony records or a history of violence. Although some jurors say they were sympathetic to their upbringing and that it may have contributed to the murders being committed, in the end, it could not excuse it could not excuse the murders. On September 10th, 1996, the California Department of Corrections separated the Menendez brothers. Lyle was bused from the North Kern State Prison to California Correctional Institution in Tehachapi, California. Um, Eric was bused to the California State Prison near Sacramento. Lyle and Eric were segregated from other prisoners and classified as maximum security prisoners. Leslie Abramson was critical of the Department of Corrections choice to separate the brothers and said that the move was unduly cruel and punitive. So basically, like, you did it just because you could. Um, There are other people who claim that it was in the best interest of the two because then they could grow as humans without having to rely on one another. Yeah. um, And that together they did more harm than good. Mm-hmm. I choose to, I personally feel that it, 
added insult to injury. Mm-hmm. But, well, yeah. They're the only thing that they have. They're the they only, only thing they have left. Yeah, yeah, they only had each other. So they did remain in separate prisons until February 2018 when Lyle was moved from Northern California to the correctional facility in San Diego County where uh, Eric was. However, they were housed in separate units until <laughs> April 4th, 2018. Lyle was moved into the same housing unit as Eric, reuniting them for the first time since they began serving their sentences Aww. nearly 22 years earlier. The brothers burst into tears and hugged each other at their first meeting in the housing unit. Um, the guards even let them like have some time alone to themselves to catch up and be reunited. The unit where they are housed now is a medium security unit, and it is reserved for inmates who agree to participate in education and rehabilitation programs without creating disruptions. Both of the brothers are um, counselors for other inmates going Aww. through addiction and their own abuses and things of that nature. Nice. The brothers' many attempts to appeal their conviction have all been denied. Damn. So that's the story. That's definitely not what I thought. Of the Menendez gonna... brothers. I know. I, so. They were set up for failure. Yeah, they were. So the way that I feel about, Okay. The way right, that I let's feel- get let's get into how <laughs> Charlie feels. The way that I feel about the sentence. Okay, so mm. I feel like this should be a new section. This is how I feel. <laughs> this is how I feel. The little counseling after the traumatic uh, reading of all of these crimes. So I was watching a documentary today about it because, like I said, I'm now currently fucking obsessed. And one of the gentlemen that was interviewed, um, I do believe he was a court TV reporter at the time. At the very end, he stated, he said, I often say if the Menendez brothers were actually the Menendez sisters, they would never have went to prison. Yes. And I, I truly 100% agree with that. Yes. There, Because there's this stigma of boys can't, mm-hmm. boys can't be victims of abuse. Like, it's not mm-hmm. possible, which we all know is bullshit, right? We all it know that's bullshit. bullshit. Um, there's, there was also a comment made where... The only way that the two were going to be able to be acquitted is if they proved that they felt that they were in imminent danger. And they said that when they were on the stand testifying that they felt that they were in imminent danger, it seemed as though it was an act. But the minute they started talking about the uh, sexual abuse, you knew it, that was not an act. Because they were so bad at acting that they were in imminent danger, it proved how true the abuse claims really were. And it was minimized in the media. The entire time the trial was going on, there was Lifetime movies being and after school specials being oh, put out. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, all of it showed them in a negative light because it was sensational and blah, 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 blah. blah. And um, there was SNL skits about the two of them making fun of the two of them. And it was just it became this circus of making fun of these two gentlemen and their very real trauma. Yeah. And I, I do believe that they should have been punished in some way. And the way that I see their punishment is very similar to the way that I see Gypsy Rose Blanchard's punishment, where Gypsy was abused for her entire life by her oh, mother. Yeah. She had fucking enough. Was it the right route to take? No, you, you shouldn't have killed your mother. No one is saying you should have killed your mother. But I can understand the frame of mind you're in when that choice is made. Yeah. So you make the choice, you make the stupid decision, you get punished for it. Gypsy Rose Blanchard was sentenced for t- to 10 years in prison. 10 years. Mm. 
She's up for parole in 2024. These men are going to be in jail for the rest of their lives. And they were put through abuses just as traumatic. Yeah. In completely different ways, but just as traumatic as what she was put through. And now, believe me, I, I, again, I know that people have very polarizing opinions about the Menendez brothers. I know that there are people who sit with their fists balled up and are convinced that the two of them are just cold-blooded murderers for the sake of money. Uh, no one's going to be able to convince you otherwise. That's fine. Um, that is your opinion. This is my opinion. That's just the way that I feel. Again, I'm not a professional. Um, I just, my, I watch these things and my heart breaks for them. And... Um, there's just something about Eric because Lyle was such a, also a domineering figure in his life. Um, that I think that if Eric was on his own, I don't think he would have done it. I think he, honestly, I think he would have killed himself. I don't think he would have killed his parents. I think that it was the influence of his brother, um, Mm -hmm. that caused that to happen, but it's just, mm. so the, special that I watched that made me sob for six hours uh, that I do recommend because it is was it on Discovery Plus? It was, it's on Hulu. Oh, Hulu. It is on the Hulu. Um, let me pull it up for you, my friends, because I looked it up today to verify that it was on Hulu and it is indeed. It's called The Menendez Murders Eric Tells All. And it is a six-part miniseries. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I lied. Five-part miniseries. Each episode is about 45 minutes. So they're interviewing Eric then? They do interview Eric uh, over the phone from jail. Oh, okay. But they also interview family members, the prosecutors. They interview, like, other people involved. Cops. Okay. Uh, other uh, court TV news anchors, blah, 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 blah. So yeah. they do interview other people other than just Eric. But Eric is speaking for himself in his own words. Now, I also watched today another one... Um, also on Hulu. And this one was where they actually were talking to Lyle over the phone in phone interviews. And it was just as, just as engaging, but it was only one episode long. Um, so it was perfect for playing while I was trying to work. That one's called truth and lies. The Menendez brothers. That's also on, um, on Hulu. And that one had, like I said, a jailhouse interview from Lyle over the phone. So, okay. But I'm telling you guys, I, it's a polarizing case. It's a polarizing, um, there's a lot of polarizing opinions. I, I hope that one day the two of them can, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hope one day that there's some sort of legal, uh, change or new law put in place that they can really be heard. So yeah. that's how I feel about the Menendez brothers. It's a it's a heartbreaker. I'm so this case is breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean I could definitely see where people are torn. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, me too. And yeah, that's yeah. the other thing too, is like I could totally see it. Like because you're I wanted to put in all that stuff about the way that they were when they were younger because they weren't great kids. Yeah. They're and kids. honestly, particularly Lyle. He was kinda of, he was a rich brat, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it you know, they thought they can get away with anything because their dad would write a check and they would be fine. And like, believe me, I I get that that's where your mind goes. And then seeing the numbers rack up of all the shit that they were spending money on at the end of it, like you get that that's where people would believe that they did it in cold blood in order to get the money. But when you, when you hear their testify, their testify, no, when you hear their testimony, 
Um, and you see the hurt. I mean, you see the hurt on their face. It is a portrait of two broken men. And it's, I'm sorry, it's fucking heartbreaking. Good story. Thanks. Good job. Thanks. It was a lot. So I know, I know that was a lot, guys. So uh, thank you so much. I hope you guys are still here and listening to the story. I thought that was an important one to tell. So I want to say thank you to Asami again for kind of forcing me to move that up to the top of the list. Uh, we kind of took a couple of weeks off from um, recording. So it was the perfect opportunity for really, me to really spend like three weeks gathering information. And that's kind of what I did as evidence by how long this episode is. So again, Asami, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank um, you. We appreciate you. And we appreciate all of you guys for listening. We think you guys are all real groovy. Um, please come and find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at Bed Crime Stories. You can email us story suggestions or just hellos at bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. Uh, make sure that you like, subscribe, review, give us five stars um, on wherever you're listening to the podcast. Make sure you like the the podcast and all that good stuff. Tell a friend. And like I said, just stop by and say hi. Mm-hmm. And on behalf of Jovi, Nikki, and myself, we hope that you have a lovely afternoon. We will see you all next week. But until then, sweet dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.